Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. As you probably know, if you're uh, a bit of a film buff, the Melbourne International Film Festival is back this year in all its real-life glory. Uh, the festival is running from the uh, 4th until the 21st of August in cinemas, and it also has an online program. But one of the aspects of MIF that I'm most intrigued and excited by this year is a programming stream called Melbourne on Film, which is a, a cinematic exploration of, of the culture of Melbourne, the films made in Melbourne, how Melbourne is reflected and documented on screen. Joining us in the studio to tell us all about the Melbourne on Film program is MIF programmer Kate Jinks. Kate, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for this program, which kind of, this, as soon as I heard about this stream, I was kind of curious and intrigued, uh, partially because I was like, what will actually end up in there? What what gems will be in there that I've never had the chance to see before? What golden greats will be revisited? But to step back for a moment, why do we need a program stream like this? We live in Melbourne. We see it every day. Why do we need to celebrate it on screen? Well, it's part of our 70th anniversary celebration. So MIF turned 70 this year. It's very exciting. There's a lot going on. But part of, uh, part of that is the idea of sort of not just looking back into the past but seeing how the city shapes us, how, it, how we've, we see ourselves reflected on screen, but also to tell the different stories of Melbourne, the many varied stories of people in Melbourne from a, a very long period of time on screen. You know, the first feature film was made in Melbourne, the story of the Kelly Gang, and you can see what's left of that film in our program. That notion of trying to reflect Melbourne, one single film, for example, cannot do justice. Even a a three-hour documentary about the history and culture of Melbourne could not fit in every story. How challenging is it for one programming stream of a festival to do that? Yeah, look, it is a challenge. Uh, My colleague Kate Fitzpatrick, who is the other um, features programmer at MIF, uh, along with our artistic director, uh, she's been working on this strand for a good number of years and uh, I came in, I've I've been involved for about a year on it. Um, There's so many films and it's like you were saying, when you hear that we're having a Melbourne on Film strand, there's, a, you know, people get, they want to see their favourite film or they want to see themselves reflected. So it's a very, it's a challenge to to be able to represent as much as we have been able to, I think. You know, I've got some favourites in there. Kate's got some favourites in there. Hopefully you've got some favourites in there. Well, there's certainly already, there's some... Uh, beloved feature films, for example, Mad Max, Malcolm, Monkey Grip, that uh, each speak to different times, different audiences, different demographics perhaps, uh, to explore some elements of the program 
the feature film Love and Other Catastrophes, for example, uh, kind of a Melbourne University set rom-com, which amongst other things was one of the first films I saw to acknowledge beat culture on screen, for example, uh, and also a film which I think almost made me break up with my boyfriend at the time. He got embarrassed at how loudly I was laughing, like roaring with laughter and delight in the cinema uh, on first seeing it. Why is Love and Other Catastrophes? catastrophes in the program? Well, that's that's opening the Strand uh, next Friday night on the, on the 5th of August. Look, it's one of my favourites. It's one of Kate's favourites. It meant so much to me as a queer teenager as well. Uh, I it just I hadn't seen myself reflected on screen in that way before. It made me want to move. To, I'm originally from Sydney. Uh, I've, you know, moved in around the corner from the cafe that they go to, Rumbarellas, RIP. Uh, you know, like I, I have such vivid, vivid memories of, of this film. And it's interesting talking to people who grew up going to University of Melbourne and, uh, you know, were teenagers at the time or a little bit older at uni. And they have very different thoughts about the film, you know, like whether it truly reflected their lives, whereas for me it was a very aspirational title. And I think that by screening it again, we've got two sessions of it, um, 35 mil as well, which is really lovely to see. I think we can all kind of take stock of what this film actually meant. You know, it was directed by a 23-year-old at the time and we've got a couple of guests, special guests coming for the screening and it's it's those sorts of things of even like a title like Noise that this is in our program. When it came out of the at, at the time, it was very celebrated but then it sort of hasn't been in discussions a lot over the last, you know, decade. So it would be really great to have that kind of a film back on screen to have people kind of reassess where it stands within the kind of Australian filmography, Melbourne filmography. But then we've got some really rare films in there as well. Talk to us about some of those because one of the things that there's a, a nice through line in some ways back in time from Love and Other Catastrophes set in and around Melbourne University in Carlton. Carlton had this thriving independent film culture going back decades earlier. Yeah, the Carlton Ripple, it's called. Uh, we've got a number of films uh, from Carlton that will be in the program, uh, like uh, Giorgio Mangeli's Clay, uh, a number of other titles, and lots of shorts as well, because there are so many of those shorts, like The Pudding Thieves, which is said to have kind of kicked it all off. Uh, so they'll be playing as pre-features before before matching features. Uh, and then we've got, you know, a film like Ghost of the Civil Dead, which has not been screened in cinemas in decades. Um, and to celebrate that, we've put together a panel sort of discussing the, the themes of the film that will, that will be after, straight after the film. It's one of the things that a film festival can do so well is, you know, as you say, not just show a film in isolation, but give it a context, give it a framing and... Uh, also, those kind of conversations then remind us that what we consider the, the, the film canon is constantly in flux. Absolutely. Yeah, we've put together um, a couple of panels based around the films, but also about our book that we've released called Melbourne on Film Cinema that defines our city, which is a collection of essays about um, many of the films in the program. And uh, yes, we're having, having a panel discussion at the Wheeler Centre next Saturday. Uh, tickets include a copy of the book, so it's very it's good for 
the lazy people who don't want to pre-order. Uh, and that Kate Fitzpatrick, the other programmer, will be leading that with Richard Lowenstein, the director of Dogs in Space, which is in the program, David Parker, the producer, cinematographer from many, many iconic Melbourne films, but including Malcolm, uh, will be there, and Yale Bergman, the producer of Love and Other Catastrophes. So it will be a great discussion of very different uh, diff- very different sides of the film industry and uh, capturing these very specific moments and subcultures as well. If we're talking about subcultures, we have to talk about pure shit, which I think I saw at MIF for the very first time when it was remastered and, and and released kind of on DVD for the first time, which I think was... Must have been fourteen years ago. Yeah, look, this film is really hard to see, uh, and I'm really thrilled to be able to see it in a cinema. I've only seen it once before in a cinema a long time ago, and uh, my memories of it are like it's it's still as shocking, I'm sure, today as it was when it came out. Uh, yeah, there are lots of those sorts of films that I cannot wait to. Like I've I've had to rewatch them to put together the program. And still I'm so excited to go and see them in a cinema with other people. And that's the whole point of a film festival. That it's that communal experience is so different to watching a film at home on on TV or streaming. A lot of these films aren't available to stream, for example. But you know, to have that shared communal experience is definitely, I think, one of the things that Melbourneian film buffs have been missing. Definitely. And there's one uh, short film collection in the program that you can come along to see. It's uh, the Melbourne Home Movie Collection. And we're using Acme's Home Movie Collection to show actual real people uh, on screen, like their family holidays, a pool that's just been opened, a beauty pageant happening, you know, in Docklands, all those sorts of things. There are... That will be wonderful and we'll have a number of the families who will be there as well. In terms of what's not in the program, there must be so many films that you wanted to get that where prints aren't available, for example, or rights are difficult to obtain as well. How... If we think of every film ever made about Melbourne and made in Melbourne as part of one big kind of multifaceted thing, how many facets are we seeing in this stream? (laughs) Well, we're trying to put in as many facets as possible. Of course, the rights of many films are extremely difficult to come across and when you can get the rights, maybe the print doesn't exist anymore, you know, things like that. But uh, we've tried, we look, we've tried our best to, uh, to, to reflect as many Melbournians as possible. Um, yeah, I, uh, we've got, you know, some crazy glam rock films like Oz, a rock and roll road movie. We've got a movie set at the races called A Ticket in Tats from 1934. You know, there's a lot in there. We also have a, a First Nations programming uh, stream called Stories from Nam as well, which is a great collection of short films. We've got one of my favourites, which is Barbara Creed's film from 1975 called Homosexuality, a Film for Discussion, where Barbara Creed took to the streets and actually asked people in the CBD what they thought of uh, laws for homosexuals. Um, the results are as you might expect and also very surprising. There's a level of kind of shock and surprise in there and uh, I think that those sorts of films where you actually get to see you know, real people talking about their lives. Those are the films where it's it will be quite exciting to, for, I think, a new audience to, to experience those and to think about the Melbourne then and the Melbourne now. 
The other thing that it perhaps might encourage people to think about, Kate, too, is that we sometimes think when films are made that they have recorded a slice of Melbourne life for posterity forever. And this is a reminder that films are still uh, missing being lost, unavailable. That So we, we need to celebrate what we can when the moment arises because that moment may not come back. Absolutely. It's, you know, we're losing films all the time. We're losing rights. We're losing good prints of films. Oh, they're getting kind of lost in, in private archives, etc. never to see the light of day. And this is an opportunity to revisit some favourites, see some new things, but really just celebrate that culture. If you want to check out the Melbourne On Film program, jump online, go to miff.com.au. I definitely recommend booking for films because I'm sure films like uh, The Club, Dogs in Space, Ghosts of the Civil Dead, Head On, the home song stories that already have loyal audiences that will want to see them, these sessions will book out. So uh, miff.com.au to book to see the Melbourne On Film program. And you can also pick up a copy of the book, which I do believe is going to be talked about in a little more detail on another program here on Triple R in the next week or so. Kate Jinks, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks. I'll see you at MIF. Triple R. It's time for us to talk about visual art. I'm joined in the studio by artist and photographer. They're kind of the same thing, but they also need and should be given kind of separate focus. Pia Johnson, who has an exhibition called Faint Echoes that's currently showing at the Bandura Homestead Art Centre until the 17th of September. Pia, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you in. Now, some listeners will know you because you document theatre, for example, but this exhibition is your art practice, kind of given its full focus and, and attention that it deserves. Thank you. Yes, it's so true. Um, I am one of those photographers, visual artists, you know, people, occasional curator um, that dips between the two and I definitely think there's synergies across both the kind of more commercial side of coming in and photographing theatre and performance um, but also that kind of moves a little bit into what I'm interested in in my fine art practice as well. Talk to us about that fine art practice. When did you begin realising that the way you see the world, particularly through a photographic lens, is different to the way other people see it and that you can show that difference to the world? Yeah, um, really great question. Probably 2009, so a little while ago now, um, I created a series called Who's the Chinese Lady that picks you up from school? And it was exactly that. I realised I looked at the world very differently and I experienced the world really differently, partly from being Eurasian and growing up in very white suburbs of Melbourne. Um, and that question was asked of me regularly. And, um, of course, it was my mother. But, uh, you know, I think it was a really impactful time for me also that I realised... I could photograph that and show that difference and present it to the public and kind of have a story to tell. And it was really um, inspiring, actually, and quite humbling because so many people kind of came out and went, oh, I know how you feel too. So the work that's being shown at the Bandura Homestead Art Centre is from a couple of different photographic series that you're kind of putting on side by side. Yes. Um, so I was one of those people that had an exhibition planned uh, at Bandura back just before COVID started and then, of course, it got um, waylaid. But what I decided, partly because of the colonial 
style of the house and the history that is so embedded within, you know, a very beautiful historic home in Bandura, I decided to put two series of works that also looked at, uh, I guess, colonial architecture, lives, histories that have well and truly uh, gone um, through a series of, or two, sorry, through two sets of series of self-portraits. Both of those were taken um, during residency periods, so where I embedded myself within two places in regional Victoria, one in Castlemaine and one in Skipton in Western Victoria. What's it like to turn the camera on yourself? It is daunting and it's also incredibly safe. Um, I get to kind of be both, you know, viewer, voyeur and empowered performer uh, in some way and I get to control it all, you know. I don't have the external eye uh, of a photographer looking at me. I just have my own and I think, you know, I'm really inspired by many female photographers that have come before me that have done the same and uh, it is a it's a really rare treat, I think. Also means you don't have to put up with histrionics from any difficult models, unless you're a difficult model. <laughs> Very funny. Um, no, I... Um, uh, I think I become, in a way, a character within the within the images. You know, um, there are performative aspects, but also really raw moments of, I guess, just self that come through in those images. And because I don't use an assistant, I am literally um, a one-man band. Um, there's a lot of play and experimentation and feeling that goes into creating the images. When you say you become a character, Pia, are you talking about creating or exaggerating aspects of your own character to create a persona for these works as opposed to stripping away all of the artifice and showing yourself? I think there's a combination of both, Um, especially with there's a series called the Muramong Green series that was the one that I did at the homestead called Muramong in Skipton. And there was so much life within the building itself. It's a living museum. Um, I was able to do that through Blindside and the National Trust. And you kind of feel like you are in a character house. You take on the personas that the house is providing you. You know, all the furniture's still there. Um, The clothes are still in the cupboard, you know. And there is a magical kind of allurement to that that you want to, I don't know, develop and reveal in the photographs while also not um, taking over the actual spaces that you're trying to uh, photograph at the same time. But I also think there is, in all of us, that vulnerability of letting our, our, our raw, stripped-back self come through as well, you know, and many of the comments that I've had around that series is that it's different having me in that space as a, um, you know, not purely white person as a contemporary woman going in rather than trying to recreate a historical figure that once lived there. Because we're talking about what a a colonial era building that was inhabited up and through until the 1950s, so a kind of high society home... Very much. ..that somebody of your heritage may well have been actively excluded from or or if you were allowed to even set foot on the premises, it's to the kitchens with you. Exactly, exactly. And I, I like playing with that power, but I also feel like there is something really interesting about re, you know, re-putting myself back in there and going, I can be in this domain and I'm allowed to be in this domain and I can enjoy this domain for what it is. Talk to us about creating that series of work visually. Uh, radio, obviously, not a visual medium, but to give us a sense of the the kind of the tone, the emotional mm. tone and the visual tone of that series that you created. 
Yeah, so it's a really grand homestead um, that, as you say, was lived up till kind of um, the 1950s, 60s. And in its heyday was one of the most interesting places because it got converted from a traditional farm homestead into an art deco, stuccoed, um, very glamorous homestead by a um, Canadian actress. She was a silent film uh, movie star that married an Australian sheep farmer. So she had a lot of money. Uh, She put in the first in-ground pool that Victoria had and uh, her dressing room, or her, sorry, her bathroom looked like a dressing room. The whole place was shades of green and yellow painted walls. Um, amazingly, not that much wallpaper, but it was actually painted. And the reason why it's called Muramong Green is because the paint colour was literally called Muramong. She had created it for herself uh, with a local painter. Um, and each image has a lot of... I've, I've taken all with natural light, so I've used the, the light that came through on the days that I was in there. And I guess everything has a sort of faded opulence about it. You know, it's a very tonal series, greens, yellows, brown wood tones. And then I've inserted myself in a um, 1950s sort of classic slip, light pink dress, barefooted, and just, you know, kind of moving through those spaces looking out windows, occasionally at the camera, um, quite passive, actually, within the space. The passivity um, is, is interesting because mm. it, you are... This is an active act of reclamation and inserting yourself into a narrative that once you would have been excluded from. Yeah. But the fact that you're doing it so gently rather than kind of aggressively is quite intriguing. Yeah, I, um, I mean, maybe that's part of my personality. Um, I'm very respectful of those kind of spaces and it was an incredible opportunity to get to that um, space and be able to literally have sort of free roam through the house. Um, I've also done a little bit of studies in conservation work. So I I think that's the other thing too. I was very careful about my footprint within the house. And I think too there's a beautiful subtlety and nuance to being or sharing that space Um, with the histories rather than necessarily wanting to sort of burn down the histories Um, and how maybe that's, I guess, a metaphor of moving forward too on so many of the ways that we understand uh, transcultural identities. So the Muramong Green series is one of the two series that makes up the exhibition Faint Echoes. The other one is Slippage, which is a series of black and white images from, what, the old Castlemaine Hospital? Yes, in the the bowels of it. um, Fantastic uh, space. And that was done with Punctum Inc. Um, And I was actually there doing another series of work on bloodlines and, like, blood. So it's a a space that you can be really messy in. So I had paint and all these other things. And I got to the end of the residency and I went, oh, I just have to take some pictures that actually reveal this incredible history also in this sort of, yeah, where it used to be all the files and women would put all the, um, you know, document all the files from the hospital down there and there would be supplies and things as well. Um, And it was really bleak and bear and I was thinking about art history and the way that we use light in specifically in photography and so I kind of created a really playful way and that series has hasn't ever been exhibited so it was quite uh, exciting but also a bit scary to put it out in the world and I think they sit quite nicely together. Well the catalogue essay by uh, Amelia Winata kind of comments on the fact that 
uh, yeah, by juxtaposing those, yes, as we've said, the, the Muramong green, there's a, a certain passivity to them uh, and uh, what a, a more kind of assertive tone in the uh, in, in slippage. Yeah, I think I was also at a point in my journey, um, so I did slippage first, where I was really trying to claim that space of being female photographer, using self-portraiture, how could I make this um, a really powerful statement about who I am and, you know, what I do? And so, yeah, I think, um, I think also too in reflection it made me... Uh, think about the roles of women, um, but also just how we, ha like all those histories of those spaces and how we live within those spaces. So it is, a, I guess, an interesting comment and I love that Amelia picked up on that. Um, but also having, Bund having the setting of Bandura to experience those, I think brings out some of those extra features as well. Well, yeah, because the the history of that place is a what um, a former hospital at one point after World War One, yes. a colonial mansion built on cool and country. Kind of, there's all kinds of resonances there to explore. Yeah, and I think that's also where I got the title in the end. You know, um, that idea of all those echoes are still there. We don't forget them, but they may sort of come in and out of focus. Pia, in terms of presenting these bodies of work uh, under the title Faint Echoes at Bandura Homestead Arts Centre. Uh, it's been on show since the 9th of July. Um, do you, I don't know, hide in corners of rooms and eavesdrop? What's the, the oh, response? I would love from... to. <laughs> I always think that. Um, I haven't been back since the opening. It was a really wonderful day, actually. Uh, it was part of the NADOC um, festival for Darabin because downstairs, so my show's upstairs, but downstairs is an incredible show um, of from their collection of Indigenous and um, First Nations uh, female artwork. But I will probably head back there in a few weeks or so and have a look and uh, make sure that it all still looks the same and I feel okay about it. And then I might, you know, go at the end in another a few weeks after that. But I tend not to uh, hang out too much um, unless I've got someone that wants to see the show with me. Are you doing any artists' talks or anything as part of the exhibition program? Not at this stage. There has been a few conversations around that. Um, it's quite a dynamic program at Darabin, so, uh, yeah, watch this space or have a look at their website, I guess, if those things pop up. For more information, Faint Echoes is showing at Bandura Homestead Arts Centre until the 17th of September. Bandura Homestead Arts Centre, located at 7 Prospect Hill Drive, Bandura. Go and make a day of it because there's more than one exhibition to see. Pia Johnson, it's been an absolute delight having you in the studio. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Theatre Works, long-standing independent home of great theatre in Melbourne. Uh, and at Theatre Works, you can see a new production soon, uh, Medea, Out of the Mouths of Babes. Joining us to tell us all about the show, from Theatre Works, Executive Director and Creative Producer Diane Toulson, and uh, Associate Artist from Theatre Works and Assistant Director on Medea, Belle Hanson. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Morning. So... Diane, we'll start with you. This yes. is uh, a lot of the shows that are 
performed and presented at Theatre Works are not Theatre Works shows per se. Theatre Works kind of works with independent companies and small, sorry, independent artists and small companies and helps them present their work. But this is a Theatre Works created show. That's right. Um, over COVID, we, we really investigated what our future could look like and we had to balance that with the financial aspect of um you know, un- uncertain box offers, you know, and all that sort of thing. So one thing that we did realise was that we had a lot of capacity in our team to be able to make our own work. And we also looked at um, the investment that we could make would um, probably uh, give the production a really strong base to work from with our resources of venues and um all the other collateral that it takes to make theatre. We also looked at um, why are we doing this work, why now? And a big part of this um, particular piece was we wanted to re-engage with youth and students and this plays on the playlist um, for drama studies. Um, So it's a very hybrid work as well as text-based theatre. There's a lot of other aspects to this production and we, with our resources and with our team, are able to produce this work at very high capacity. So it is equivalent to, you know, a main stage large theatre piece of work. Bell, in terms of your role on the show, obviously, yes, as we said, you're one of the associate artists at Theatre Works, which means you're getting this kind of behind-the-scenes, hands-on, hothouse development yeah, totally. element. Uh, but as assistant director, talk to us about working on the show in, in that regard. And to, to begin with... Why, apart from the fact that Medea is on the curriculum this year, why retell this story about which at its heart is a tragedy um, about a woman who kills her own children? Yeah, totally. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, we all know Medea and it's a massive... I mean, Greek theatre is supposed to be grand and huge and I think it plays into what Di was saying. Theatre Works wants to do a huge production that makes students and also adults really excited to get back in the theatre again post-COVID times. And what better than the massive tale of Medea and a story of a woman who went through so much and we're really interrogating what is forgivable and what's not. Um, I think everyone thinks that killing your children is probably not the most forgivable act in the world, but it's so complex and it's not just a black and white story, um, as a lot of people learn about it in school. Yeah. The... That notion of, uh, of of killing one's own children, we see it play out far too often uh, in Australia today and it's usually a man who has been spurned by his partner whose ego is so enormous but yet so fragile that uh, to get revenge he will murder his partner's children, for example, or sometimes even his partner as well. Uh, It's a a shocking act, regardless of who commits it. Talk to us about how it is played out in Medea, because the lens through which we look at an act like this has changed over time, and what was once an evil, wicked woman killing children, we now look at... uh, more sympathetically, through a feminist lens, through through other lenses. How are we seeing this play out in this production? Yeah, so we actually started um, 
development on this uh, show almost a oh, almost a year ago, um, and it began with a children's council where we actually uh, got the children to talk about the story of Medea um, and brought them in and. I mean, it's called Out of the Mouths of Babes, so it's through the perspective of the children who do eventually get murdered in the end. Um, and it's uh, it's very much uh, a grand version of how kids see the world and the audience gets to experience that in full colour and uh, cartoon-esque moments and it's just all a mashup of how kids see the world and how they hear adult conversations. And Di, unlike, say... Um the Kate Mulvaney and Louise Sarks production of Medea that Belvoir did back in, what, 2012, which kind of was shown through the eyes of the children with children acting on stage. Yep. Here, kind of the work has been developed, uh, as we just heard, through a children's council, but what, with adults playing roles that children have informed. Yeah, that's right. So the the work that the children did, the interviews they gave and the pictures that they drew and the stories that they told were translated by this creative team. So they, they even informed the costumes. So the costuming in this show is going to be there from the eyes of a child. And uh, even the set, the set is huge and there are elements of that you can only say came from a child's brain. So this creative team took all that um, information and they went into the room and said, what did these children see and how do we represent that? Um, we, The three actors that are in this show are exceptional and uh, they've had a, a massive challenge with a massive script um, and to to represent that through the eyes of the children. So um, our, our marketing and our approach to it... Um, is very representative of what the children saw. So the outcome you'll see on the stage is exactly what the children told us about that story. Um, but it is very much for 15 plus, you know, even though we don't graphically murder children in the show, um, the, the, you know, there's a lot of content. It's a very hybrid theatre, even though it's text-based theatre with a, with a long script. It has visuals, it has live stream, it has massive um, video clips. It's like a rock musical at times. The, the soundscape and the music, a lot of it's original and being composed with Rachel Lewenden. Um, and and, you know, it's a very unique piece of independent theatre, something that I don't think I've ever seen in the independent sector. I probably have seen something like that on the main stage. Um, I'm obviously relieved that you're not graphically killing children on stage, um, <laughs> but also uh, the fact that there are adults playing kind of these roles. Um, uh, talk to us about the duty of care in protecting the children who made up the Children's Council from protecting them from trauma while at the same time asking them to contribute their thoughts and their insights to the show. Yeah, totally. Um, we had some amazing answers. We were talking to them about um, character and uh, stuff like that. And the kids, they have such wild imaginations, but also such um, pure insight into things. Like they were asked, why do you think... Jason left Medea and very um, carefully worded questions like that without the graphic version of the story. And um, one of the kids uh, said, um, because he wanted to marry the king and it completely gender-bended, queered the narrative and we were so into that sort of thing. Um, the fact that these kids are just coming up with that sort of stuff and one said that Jason was like Iron Man and another drew Medea in this big 
orange thing that I couldn't even tell you what type of garment it was. It was just fantastic. To inform the show through their eyes, kind of kids have such amazing, remarkable imaginations. Um, that already adds a level to this production that uh, is fresh and exciting and intriguing. And then, Di, everything you said about the scale of the yeah. production as well, it, it feels like you've taken the imaginative ideas of the kids and kind of run with them and kind of breathed so much more life and depth into the ideas they've presented. Absolutely. I sat in on the Children Council with the children to be a part of the process, um, obviously duty of care, and a couple of those, three of those children were my grandchildren. And we didn't, uh, when we were retelling the story, we didn't give them any graphic detail. And when we got to the part where um, Jason and Madea are escaping on the ship and the kids are drawing pictures, um, we said uh, that Medea threw the brother, her brother over to slow the ship down and we said, what do you think happened? And three or four of them said, oh, she killed him and murdered him and chopped him up. And we're like, oh, my goodness, you know, how how do six to ten-year-olds think of that stuff? And they they knew, they got the storyline. But, you know, even the costume pictures that they drew, our um, (laughs) costume designer, Harney Goldfinch, has actually made them. You know, and, and that's been an epic task to do that because some of them were, were way out there. So um, there is a bit of gender bending definitely happening in the costuming with my grandkids being there. <laughs> now, Belle, in terms of working on the, the production, Stephen Mitchell Wright is the director of the show. You're the assistant director. Talk to us about the, the dynamic at play there. I've spoken to assistant directors in the past over a glass of wine at opening nights, not... <laughs> opening nights of theatre work shows, I hasten to add, um, who've kind of rolled their eyes and, and, and expressed frustration about being an assistant director and being overruled or or they're having their suggestions kind of just dismissed. Um, I get the sense that uh, in a theatre works production that would not be the case. So talk to no. us about yeah. kind of your contribution to the show and what you, what you are gaining from the production as much as what you are giving Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I came onto this production through the Associate Artist Program. So I came into the program as a theatre maker, director and performer. And uh, Stephen and my uh, aesthetic and ethos very much align. And we said that from the interview stage going forward. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me that I wanted to work on Medea and a piece of scale. Um, And when we got into the rehearsal room, we had a conversation from the get-go about what I wanted to get from the project, which was honestly watching a uh, full process at scale with the funding and everything that TheatreWorks has put behind it and milking everything I can out of that. And also, I've gotten time to work with the actors on physicality work and um, text-based things and stuff like that. It really is a fully collaborative room, um, and Stephen leads that very, very well. Um, always checking in for uh, all ideas, but also saying when it's not time for extra things and stuff like that. Um, I've also had many of those conversations with assistant directors, but I think the key is to be clear about what roles are at the beginning of uh, 
beginning of the process and sticking to that and or evolving as the process continues. Now, given your background includes working with uh, companies like uh, Queensland Theatre and an, another Brisbane company, Zenzenzo Physical Theatre, does the Brisbane connection help when working with Stephen? <laughs> that he's also an ex-Queenslander. Uh, look, there are so many Queensland artists that are now in Melbourne and I feel like I've just, I feel like I found all of them. Um, but Shout out to Elbow Room. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah uh, I mean, we have a lot of uh, similar training backgrounds and stuff like that. So that's, we have a shared language um, that probably comes from that sort of thing and uh, a lot of shared productions that we've seen and or influences that we've been around. Um, but... I think that it's truly a testament to how Stephen runs a room that everyone feels included and welcome. And Di, in terms of uh, the fact that this is a, a Theatre Works production, how important is it for Theatre Works to, to be creating works with this degree of ambition and complexity? I think it's been a missing link. And, you know, one of the benefits of COVID was that we had access to more support and time to stop and think and breathe and think about who we were as an organisation and how we could survive into the future. As you know, Works has had a tumultuous past, up and down, good, bad, like every organisation. But the two years of COVID, we squirrelled away as much money as we could. We looked at how to fund the future of Works when the COVID money stopped. And we also looked at our reputation. Why do... You know, when I'm at conferences or talking to people, why is Theatre Works overlooked at times in important conversations? And one of those to me and to our team was that we're not seen as a producer of work. We've been historically seen as a venue that has shows in it and we don't, that's not who we are, like our co-productions with all those independent artists. We invest over $20,000 in each show with everything that we contribute. But we're still we still felt there was a missing link as being a producer and we wanted to produce work of scale that had uh, a quality to it and that also built our reputation as someone that could produce so that shows that we do had a life outside of theatre works at, you know, other touring uh, venues and places like that or we could go on a a festival tour with work. So we really looked at balancing our season with some theatre works produced works. The last, well, last, the first Theatre Works produced work this year was uh, a solo show, kind of a one-woman show, uh, wonderful performance from Jay Montgomery Griffiths, and then this. It's kind of like you've gone from one extreme to the other. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Human Voice, we had a show council and we're like, what do we do? Where do we find the money? And uh, we had been, I'd been chasing Jay Montgomery, Montgomery Griffiths to to work with her for years, you know, and uh, our wonderful literary development manager, Bryony Dunn, said, well, I've got this Jean Cocteau play, let's do that. And even though it was a it was a one-person show, the set and scale, the lighting design of that production was epic. It was such a magnificent piece of theatre. Um, so even though it was one actor, it was still a work of scale and uh, incredibly proud of that work and, and what it did. And we've got lots of interest in that for the touring market, which is amazing. Fantastic. And I'm sure there will be lots of interest as well for Medea out of the mouths of babes. Uh, obviously, it's a show that comes with a few trigger warnings, uh, but it also sounds like it's going to be a significant show, not just for its scale and its ambition, but also because it's a reminder that in 
domestic disputes, arguments, divorces, uh, we don't often hear the children's voices. We only hear those of the parents. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really changing who's the centre of the story um, from the initial tale. A lot of stagings, the children say absolutely nothing or they're not there or they're in the background or they're on AV or somewhere else. But this is anything that the children heard is told, things that they didn't hear, we don't hear. So it's all through what they saw and what they heard. The Theatre Works production Medea, Out of the Mouths of Babes, is on previewing from, what, the 30th of July, opening next week and running through until the 20th of August with Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday the 3rd of August being opening night. Uh, tickets $40, 32 concession, 25 for the previews uh, and also students uh, and you can jump online to book by going to theatreworks.org.au or you can pick up the phone right now, 9534 that's nine five three four double three double eight or theatreworks.org.au to book to see Medea out of the mouths of babes from the 30th of July through until the 20th of August. And uh, if you've not been to Theatreworks before, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda is where your destination lies. Thank you both for coming in and for a, such a, a broad-ranging and detailed conversation. Sounds like it's going to be a great production. Thank Thanks you so for much. your support, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 